Good morning, everyone. You may remain standing for the sermon. No, I'm just kidding. You can stay. <laughs> All right. Life, hey? Sometimes it goes like this morning. And God is still faithful in and through it and works. There's my sermon. We can almost go home now. Good morning. Uh, if you're new here, my name is Jeremy Isaac. Uh, I'm the campus pastor in Harrison and uh, privileged to be with you all this morning, uh, praising our God who's worthy, regardless of whether music goes wrong or life doesn't go the way that we want it to. Uh, God is still good. Uh, I want to start off with a story this morning of a couple sisters named Corey and Betsy Ten Boom. Um, about 80 years ago, Corey and Betsy uh, who were born in the Netherlands. They lived in a town called Harlem. They found themselves being invaded by the Germans, by the Nazis, 1940, uh, in the Netherlands. Now, these sisters and their family actually was a very devout, strong Christian family. And out of their love for God, they felt compelled to help the Jews at that time who were being persecuted by the Nazis. And so... Um, more so un unwillingly, their house became the center for an anti-Nazi secret uh, operation, and they began to hide Nazis or sorry Jews and help them in their journeys. Um, unfortunately, at one point, they took on someone who claimed to be a Jew but was actually a spy, and so Betsy and Corey they end up in prison, and then later on they're taken to a concentration camp called Ravensbrück in Berlin. Now. The situations and the circumstances that these sisters encountered were absolutely awful. Um, they were fed peanuts every day, not literally, but very, fed very little every day, and yet demanded to do long hours of arduous labor. Uh, they were treated in ways that are so horrific that I won't mention here today. Brutal, brutal setting. And yet... Even in, in those demoralizing, defeating circumstances, they witnessed God at work. One of the ways was that they were miraculously able to hold on to a Dutch Bible that even though these women were, were searched thoroughly whenever they came into these concentration camps, they were able to smuggle this Bible right into camp by nothing short of a miracle. And so these sisters had begun doing these Bible studies in the evenings, just with a few women, just secretly, but diving into the Word of God and finding comfort and encouragement there. At one point, these women were moved within Ravensbrook to what they called District 28, a different part of the concentration camp. And here, situations went even worse. The dormitory that they were brought to may have actually been a room, something like this, uh, it was meant to house 400 women. They had 1,400 women living in that room, which only had eight toilets. We have a hard time with three women in our house and three toilets. So imagine 1,400 and eight toilets. Uh, but conditions were, were awful. They had um, women sleeping in bunk beds of, of like three sets and no mattresses. They had wooden slats with hay on top, which kind of got moldy and, and stinky. There's quite an odor in, the, odor in the place. Women were just crammed together. Uh, Corey writes that basically her neighbor's feet were about two inches away from her nose every night, just crammed together. And yet, 
something that they, they noticed throughout this time there was that their Bible study times were beginning to, to grow and, and more and more women were attending these, these evening studies. And so God was doing this, this beautiful thing where all these women of, of different denominations were coming and worshiping together. And so they'd have you know, a group of, of Roman Catholic women recite the Mary's Magnificat. And then they'd have a group of Lutheran women uh, whisper a hymn together. And then Corey or Betsy would proceed to read from their Dutch Bible, which they would themselves translate into German. But then they would hear other women whispering translations into French and, and Polish and Russian and Czech, and then all the way back into Dutch. And God just kept moving. And for a while, these sisters wondered, why are we being allowed to do this? In every other location in these concentration camps, even in the previous concentration camps in the dormitories, they were strictly monitored by all the guards. But at District 28, the guards would not come into the dormitory. And finally it clicked a few weeks later. God was using disgusting fleas in their dormitory and keeping the guards out because they did not want to get these fleas on themselves. It's an incredible story. You can read it in The Hiding Place uh, if you're interested. Highly recommend it. Uh, but the point I want to make is that even in these demoralizing, uh, defeating, despairing circumstances, God is still faithfully at work, um, even though often we don't recognize what he's doing. So this morning we're back in uh, 1 Kings. We're going to be taking a look at chapter 19, as was just read for us. We're continuing our series on the life of the prophet Elijah. And so from our text this morning, I want to show how even though Elijah finds himself at the, the very lowest point in his career, God is faithful and he's still at work. And so even in the midst of our despair, our defeat, even our disobedience, God is with us and his plans and his grace prevail. So would you pray with me as we uh, dive into God's word. Lord Jesus, thank you for uh, your greatness. Thank you for the way in which you speak to us through your word. Uh, we pray that, um, yeah, you would do so at this point uh, by your spirit and that you would encourage us, uh, you would challenge us where needed, um, particularly that you would bring a message of comfort this morning and that we would be conformed into your image, Lord Jesus. We pray this all in your name. Amen. So like any good sermon, I've got a few points for you this morning. Uh, first one will be God's presence in our despair. So if we back up to last week, 1 Kings 18, uh, Pastor Jonathan was here to tell us about the rumble in the jungle, battle royale on Mount Carmel. Elijah is at you know, the, the climax of his career, his life perhaps. He's just had this mountaintop experience where he went up against 850 false, false prophets, the Lord against the false God of Baal. And yet, even though Elijah set everything up in favor of, of the, the prophets of Baal, 
You know, God rains down, rains is probably not the right word. God sends down fire on a waterlogged altar and demonstrates without a doubt that he is the Lord. Now at this point, we'd be thinking that Elijah would be doing fantastic, right? Mountain high, feel invincible. And yet, in the, immediately in the next passage, things take a quick turn south. We read that uh, Ahab goes to his queen Jezebel and she informs him of what just happened, of how Elijah had all of her false prophets massacred. And Jezebel, whew, she's furious, not happy. And so she sends a death threat to Elijah. And Elijah has good reason to believe that Jezebel will carry through with this threat. It would not be the first time that she's done so. If we back up to 1 Kings 18, verse 13, we read where uh, the man of God, servant of God, Obadiah, had warned Elijah previously how Jezebel had acted in this way in the past. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? Jezebel has this reputation for, for evil, and she won't stop short even of murdering the Lord's prophets. And so despite all the, the powerful and, and miraculous ways in which Elijah is seeing God work, at this point, because of this death threat from Jezebel, he's terrified and he runs for his life. On the map here uh, behind me, you can see where Elijah started out up in Jezreel, that's close to the top of, of Israel. And he books it all the way to Beersheba, which is at the very south of Judah. And then as if it wasn't enough to flee all the way to the opposite end of a different nation, we're told that he heads another day's journey further into the wilderness, leaving his servant there in Beersheba. There, Elijah finds himself at, at the lowest point in his life. And he turns to God and says, God, Take my life from me. It would be better for me to be dead than to be alive. Now, have you ever felt like Elijah did at that moment? Have you ever hit just rock bottom, your lowest of lows? You felt like you were at the end of your rope and just had nowhere to turn? Perhaps you've, you've struggled through a, a season of despair or, or depression. Perhaps even like Elijah at that point, you felt that, God, <laughs> things are so hard. You know, it would be better if you just took my life. That is where Elijah's at in that moment. Now, these eight verses in, at the beginning of 1 Kings 19, I feel like they're easy to, to gloss over and just skip ahead to the more dramatic encounter that Elijah has with the Lord on Mount Hor and Mount Sinai. But if we did, we'd miss a, a very important truth. And that is that God does not abandon us in our state of despair. But actually, he meets us precisely where we're at. You see, then and there, the Lord sends an angel to Elijah 
who after he's fallen asleep, awakes him and then offers him bread and water, sustenance. Elijah sleeps again and then the angel comes back a second time, offers him more bread, more water to give him energy for a journey that he sets out then to go to Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, where Moses had met with the Lord previously. Rather than wait for Elijah to get it together, to, you know, maybe get out of this, this pity party or this temper tantrum that he's throwing, God meets him exactly where he's at. The fact that the God is with us in our lowest moments is a truth to, to cling to and to cling to the word of God at those times. Because if we base our beliefs about God and who he is on our feelings, we're going to go all sorts of wrong. But we can cling to the fact that, that God is with us. He's promised never to leave us or to forsake us. He's given us promises in his word, like Psalm 46, verse 1, where we're told that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. God is with us. But I'd like to make even a bigger point yet from these eight verses. And that is that God's purposes prevail despite our despair. Many of you would be familiar with the name Charles Spurgeon, born in the United Kingdom. He's considered one of the greatest preachers of all time. Uh, It's said that he preached 3,561 sermons to about 10 million people often speaking 10 times a week. Yikes, I struggle doing once a week or once every other week. Go Spurgeon. What you might not know about this cigar-smoking man's man is that he struggled a lifelong struggle with depression. At the age of 22, he was already gathering notoriety, and so he found himself speaking at the Royal Surrey Garden uh, Music Hall, And there, to a a packed house of of 10,000 plus, everything went wrong that day. Pranksters yelled out, fire! And although there was no danger, everyone fled the hall that day. And 28 people were severely injured. Seven died. And that was something that Spurgeon just could never get out of his mind. Beyond the the mental struggles, Spurgeon also suffered with different physical ailments, um, persecution from his critics, opposition, and also the death of his grandson at a very early age. Yet throughout the challenges, throughout the depression, Spurgeon was, was keen in that God had a purpose throughout it all. He was making Spurgeon a more compassionate pastor and was maturing him in the likeness of Christ. God was very much at work through his depression and suffering. For us, in those times, it it can often feel like God is nowhere to be found, right? We're, We're crying out to no answer. And yet we're called to remember that that God is with us, that his purposes prevail despite and in our despair. 
And so would you trust him? If you find yourself in that sort of a position this morning, you're feeling like, like you may be at a low point in your life, trust that, that God is indeed with you. He never leaves us alone. And secondly, trust God's providence and his presence. Trust that your suffering is being used by him for his purposes. I want to take a look now at, at God's providence in our defeat, moving on to uh, the second section there in 1 Kings 19. We read that Elijah travels to Mount Horeb. He goes on this long journey. And then when he arrives, he holds himself up in a cave and God questions him. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah responds, verse 10, he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. Elijah responds, discouraged, distressed, defeated. God doesn't answer Elijah directly as we heard earlier, but actually reveals himself through a demonstration of power. He sends a mighty wind, he sends a mighty earthquake, and then he sends a great fire. But we read that God's not actually in any of those demonstrations of power, but then he speaks to him through a still whisper. Now God goes on to actually question Elijah again. What are you doing here, Elijah? And our expectation is that at this point, Elijah's going to have a different answer, right? God has just revealed to himself mightily. Any of you had a conversation like this with the Lord where he's answered by wind, earthquake, fire, and then a still whisper? No, Elijah did. And yet, Check out his response. He responds verbatim in verse 14. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. Elijah's stuck. He's discouraged, he's, he's depressed and can't look beyond himself and this little pity party that he's throwing. But a question we need to ask ourselves if we go a little bit deeper in this text is, is Elijah actually got a right perception of the facts? Is he telling the truth? Well, he doesn't actually have it all straight, right? As we read just the chapter previous from Obadiah's report, Elijah is not the only one left. Obadiah has saved 50 prophets in one cave, 50 prophets in another. Elijah's miscontrued the facts and he's got himself into this, this place where he just cannot see things straight. God proceeds to give Elijah new marching orders. He tells him to go anoint Hazael, king of Syria, Jehu, king over Israel, and then Elisha as his successor. Then listen to the Lord's closing words to Elijah in verse 18. Yet 
I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah claims he's the only one left, but the Lord says that he's actually got a remnant. He's got many, 7,000 who are still following him as the Lord. Elijah is not in control here. God is. And even though he's been powerfully moving through Elijah in grand ways, he's not limited to that. He's not limited to the, to the fireworks, but can work in quiet ways in people's hearts. Elijah finds himself that at the lowest point in his life in this chapter. He feels defeated, but, but God's trying to show him that his purposes prevail, even despite our defeats. Now, if, if we're honest here this morning, we'd have to recognize that we can often be like Elijah. When things don't go right in our lives, we focus on those things, right? When an acoustic doesn't work, we focus all of us on the fact that, oh, that acoustic isn't working, rather than the fact that We've got an almighty God that we're worshiping, that we're gathered here together as his people to sing his holy praises. We can get our perceptions all wrong, right? Any of you love flying? Yeah? Anyone ever uh, taken off middle of the day when it was just storming rains and dogs? Sorry, cats and dogs. Storming lots of rain. I'll keep going. <laughs> uh, 15 years ago, uh, traveled to Costa Rica, uh, flew out of the Abbotsford Airport. And I remember uh, that early afternoon, it was just raining like crazy, BC, I guess. And I started to get a little worried, like, it, will this plane be able to take off all right? Are the wheels going to slip? What's going to happen? The pilots, they knew what they were doing. Everything worked out just fine. We come just out of this torrential downpour, come into the clouds, everything that goes all gray. And then we came into just a beautiful, bright, sunny day above the clouds. It was the same day, same time, same general location, but it was just a different perspective. Right down below, it seemed like nothing was going right. Everything was this, this crazy storm. But at the same time, it's a beautiful day. I think if we're honest, we we love to be in control, right? We go for a drive, we get all greens. Hey, that can make your day. You start hitting red after red after red, your blood starts to boil. Come on. In our lives, when when things don't go our way, we encounter challenges, illness, it's financial trouble, things that make us realize that, that we're not in control. We can start to despair. We can start to feel defeated. We can start to maybe question where God is, what he's doing. And yet the fact remains that, that he's on the throne. He's Lord. 
He is in control and he's not hindered by our defeats, by our low circumstances, but continues to work out his purposes and does so for his glory and actually for our good. Perhaps if if you're in a season like that today, maybe you need to hear the words of Psalm 46, verse 10. Just as the Lord spoke to Elijah through a whisper, God also calls us to be still and know that I am God. Regardless of what happens in your life on the earth, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Six centuries after Elijah prophesied, a group of 11 men found themselves hiding in fear for their lives in an upper room. A man that they had just followed for three years who'd performed great miracles and and taught great crowds who claimed to be God was now dead. He'd been crucified and lay in a grave. Where would they go? Their their hopes and aspirations had just been shattered. And yet, all of this was in accordance with God's plan and purpose. For three days later, God raised Jesus from the grave and established the greatest victory of all time. Jesus conquered Satan, sin, and death. He used what looked like the the very worst circumstances to bring about the greatest good. I love a few verses in in Acts 2 where the Apostle Peter in his address on the day of Pentecost um, gives God the credit for all of that. And he acknowledges how God was orchestrating all of these things. Take a look at Acts 22 verses, sorry, Acts 2 verses 22 to 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This worst moment in the disciples' life was actually exactly according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Church, if not even death can stop God's purposes, know that whatever you're facing today or whatever you might face is 100% under God's control. Trust his providence, even in your defeat. The last point that this passage directs us to is, is God's grace in our disobedience. So up until 1 Kings 19, uh, Elijah's been the, the poster boy for obedience. Right? We're introduced to him in 1 Kings 17, and God tells him to go to Ahab, you know, enemy king, and declare this famine over his false god Baal. Elijah goes. God sends him to the brook of Cherith to be fed by ravens. Elijah goes. Go to Zarephath to be fed by a, a destitute widow. Yeah, I'm on it. 
go back to Ahab. Elijah goes, but now we start to, to see Elijah's obedience crumble. Elijah has, has been sent by the Lord to go anoint these two kings and Elisha. And so he goes and he finds Elisha. But if you listen closely to the text, he doesn't actually anoint him. He half-heartedly throws his cloak over him. Yes, in a, in a kind of calling. But then when Elijah says, oh, I got to go and, and say goodbye to my parents, Elijah cryptically says, go back again. What have I done to you? This is some degree of a personal conjecture, but I wonder if Elijah's not almost trying to botch his calling of his successor. If we read on in, in 1 Kings uh, 1 and then into 1 Kings or 2 Kings, uh, we find out that Elijah doesn't actually ever go and anoint Hazael, king of Syria. He never actually goes to Jehu to anoint him king over Israel. It's Elisha that ends up doing these things. Elisha should have feared God more than Jezebel and he flees for his life. In the story in the cave, God actually beckoned him to the mouth of the cave and yet Elijah waited until God whispered. And here we see Elijah, you know, ignoring the instructions of the God Almighty. What shocks me about this is that God doesn't strike him dead. God has mercy and, and grace and patience for him and actually continues to use Elijah. God proceeds to speak to Elijah three more times at the end of 1 Kings and beginning of 2 Kings. God actually sends fire two more times at Elijah's bequest. God uh, answers Elijah when he takes his cloak and seeks to part the Jordan River and he allows for him and Elisha to cross over in 2 Kings 2. And then in an unprecedented matter, God actually takes Elijah up into heaven by a chariots of fire, making him the second person in history to not taste death. Despite Elijah's disobedience, God honors him. He shows him grace. I believe that's something that we need to hear today as well. As much as obedience is, is so important, you know, uh, it is sin to not obey our Heavenly Father. But God has grace for us in that disobedience. You might be the holiest person you know and um, read your Bible daily, pray continually, weak fastly, give to the poor, do yada, 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 not do yada, yada, yada. And yet we're all sinners. You and I, each and every one of us, as God's creation, his creatures, we've rebelled against our creator. And in fact, we've had this predisposition all of our life. Listen to the words of David in Psalm 51, verses three to five. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. 
Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That's David. That's Elijah. That's, that's you and I. But you know what? We have a God who does not treat us the way that our sins deserve. Psalm 103, verses 10 to 12. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Well, God has always been a God of grace. 2,000 years ago, he demonstrated the extent of that grace by allowing his son to die on the cross, to take our place and our sin upon himself. Today, it's only through Jesus' sacrifice that as Psalm 103 talks about, we can have our sins separated from us as far as the east is from the west. Because of our sins, you and I deserve eternal death. And yet Jesus tasted death for us. Then instead of that condemnation, that judgment, we might have eternal life through faith in Christ. That is the extent of God's great grace. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Uh, your faithfulness. Thank you for what uh, a great God you are and that regardless of what, what happens on earth, that regardless of our, our despair, our defeat, our disobedience, that you are still on the throne and your purposes prevail. Help us trust you, Jesus. Um, trust you in their best of times. Trust you at our lowest points. And know that, that you are with us. Know your love. Know your grace. We love you. And we pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. This morning we're going to remember uh, God's grace and, and Jesus' sacrifice in a very practical way by participating in communion together. Um, if you haven't grabbed a, a cup and a wafer, uh, we do have more. Just raise your hand and uh, one of our ushers can bring one to you. But this morning we celebrate how uh, Jesus gave his body. He shed his blood for us. Uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, 11, he calls us to examine ourselves. So if you have sin in your life that you have not repented of, uh, would you deal with that now and experience the, the grace of God, the forgiveness that comes only through Jesus' shed blood on the cross. I'm going to read a, a couple verses before we partake of each element and then give a little, bit of, um, a little bit of silence afterwards that we can just reflect on what Jesus has done for us and on the grace of God. The Apostle Paul gives directions on how to partake of communion uh, in his letter to the Corinthians. This is 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 24. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This wafer represents Christ's body broken for us. Let's eat in remembrance of him. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This cup represents Jesus' blood shed for us. Let's drink together in remembrance of his sacrifice. Jesus, thank you for your greatest gift of grace, for laying down your life, though you did not deserve the punishment, but doing so out of love for each one of us. Thank you that uh, salvation is found only in you. There's no way that we can earn it, um, but you give it freely by grace as we place our faith in you. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your sacrifice. And we pray all this in your good name. Amen. Amen.